You're now listening to the Project Bouldering Podcast. My name is Javier Ortega, and this is my co-host, Brendan Baca. How's it going, everyone? So first of all, I would like to thank the local business community of Albuquerque Organic Climbing for the overwhelming support of Project Bouldering and Jams last weekend at Tractor Brewing. We were able to raise $800 in our silent auction, which was amazing. And we're in this planning stages of our community climbing and cleanup days. So stay tuned. That information will come out on our Facebook page and other social media outlets. Today, we're sitting in the office of Timmy Fairfield. Timmy's been a national caliber climber since the mid-90s. Does not seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Some of his accomplishments include being the highest ranking North American male ever at Arco Rockmasters International Invitational, took third in 1999, spent five consecutive seasons ranked in the top 10 of the World Cup bouldering. He's climbed up to 8C, which is 14B on rope. Actually, no, that's 14D, right? Haven't you climbed 14B? I've actually climbed 14C. 14C, okay. 14C and bouldered V15. Actually, he bouldered V15 earlier this year. And if you all want to check it out, there's a video on Deadpoint Magazine. Just search Throwback, and you'll see the video. We're going to get into that a little bit today and some other topics. So, Timmy, thanks a lot for being on here. How have you been the last few months, man? Well, thanks for having me. I've been well. I've been busy, and I'm glad we finally were able to catch up with each other because we've been trying to conduct this interview for six months. <laughs> yeah, at least. <laughs> so I appreciate you guys beating down my door. And I'd like to start the interview by sending my condolences to Quincy Conway's family because I think that's that was a big loss for the climbing community at large and for the New Mexico climbing community. And and he were, he and I were both sponsored by Madrock, so he is mm. a, a, a fellow team member. Absolutely. I, we remember Quincy when he was just a little kid, like five, six years old. We brought him up to Cuesta with my friend Scott mm-hmm. Cherry, who mentored him and uh, really encouraged his parents to get him more deeply committed to climbing. Yeah. So I always remember him as a, a very inspired and curious, uh, innocent young kid wanting to go bolder and had a very positive attitude. And, and I knew he had a bright future. And I'm very sorry to see that his his story has been cut short yeah well, thanks for saying that man actually half of the money that we raised i don't know if you knew this but half of the money we raised for the silent auction we're giving to quincy conway foundation that's we great might, um to start a climbing scholarship or they're trying to get an endowment at santa fe prep whatever they want to do with it but i met him last year and kind of worked with his mom a little bit in my student wellness program in Santa Fe and met Quincy about five times and he had the light, man. He absolutely had just this energy that I was so drawn to. It was like, I didn't get to climb with him, didn't get to hang out with him, but feel like I uh, lost a comrade. There was just like a similar view on life and a similar approach and it's rough, man. So thanks for calling attention to that. And we hope this actually isn't the end of his story, you know, his, his life as we know it may have been cut short, but you know, that, that inspiration that he brought to the climbing community will stay on. That's his legacy. And it's amazing to be 17 years old and have that kind of legacy. I think that's like, you know, the whole supernova metaphor. You're just a star, you're a star, you're a star, and then you explode and your energy goes out into the universe and it's bigger than it ever was when you were just a star. You know, I think that's, that's inspiring. That's how I choose to think about this kind of loss, you know? 
I agree. So thank you guys for doing that for his yeah. family and, and for his legacy. I appreciate that. Absolutely, man. So let's get started here with, with you, Timmy. Where were you born? How long have you been in New Mexico? I was born in a grungy Air Force hospital in Oceanport, New Jersey, in Monmouth County, and um, lived in New York for three and a half years after that, New York City. And my mother moved here with my brother and I when I was four years old, and my brother was six months old. And I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, spent a lot of time, as I told you guys earlier, going to Taos and uh, growing up, did a lot of ski racing and traveled a lot in California and Colorado, going to different ski areas. And um, my parents prioritized traveling me at a very young age. So they sent me to Mexico when I was in eighth grade for three months for a summer semester. And that was a tremendous learning experience. Uh, And uh, then after that, they sent me to Europe when I was 16 and I visited 12 countries. And then after I was on a school tour and after that, I spent an additional four weeks traveling on my own to uh, Scandinavia. So that, I would say, shaped a lot of how I viewed being a world citizen and how I viewed my future you know, my career choices and my desire to speak other languages, live in other countries and learn from foreign people, which I think is not necessarily the way that we are normally conditioned in this society. So I think that that uh, contributed greatly to me wanting to pursue a career in at what at the time was more of a non-traditional sport and, and a foreign sport, foreign activity, yeah. if you will. Yeah. I was very interested in something that would bring me to different places in the world. My uncle sure. was the one who got me into climbing, actually. Interesting. What age was that? Well, it started out by going hiking and just camping and going into the mountains and developing a relationship with the outdoors. And then he brought me rappelling. And when I was about... I remember when I was about five, my brother was... Well, he would have been like one and a half, two. Um, we pulled him up a little frozen waterfall in the foothills, and that was pretty fun. I Actually, I got pulled up at two. <laughs> Was it up Car- uh, Candelaria? It, it was up watch? above U-Mound uh, at the uh, end of okay. Copper. There's a little drainage there, and it would freeze over. So my uncle That's cool. tied some little webbing harnesses on us and pulled us up that thing. Uh, that was pretty fun. And and then, you know, I always wanted to go in the mountains after that. And when I started going on a regular basis in my adolescence, I experienced rappelling. And after I did that once, a second time down, I was just looking at the holds, thinking about how you would actually climb up it. It just looked like more of a challenge than the, than the rappelling. So I said, hey, I want to climb. So as you were going down, you were like, how do I go up? I was looking at the holds. I was wondering how you climb it immediately. That That's was in awesome. the Sandias. So then my uncle got me into triad climbing, and he required that I learn every aspect of natural protection, trad climbing, safety. Um, he, you know, he knew he had been in the coast guard. He traveled a lot in Europe. So he came at it more from a very functional, well-rounded standpoint. So I learned how to aid climb. I learned, I learned a lot. And that would you say was before like 10? What age would you say? Oh, no, I was like 11, 12, 13. When you started doing natural protection and Yeah, and there were no gyms at the time. So if you didn't know someone who climbed outside, you were probably not going to learn how to climb. (laughs) You had to be introduced by somebody who was doing it. When did it become clear to your uncle and to you that you you had a pretty good talent for this? 
I don't know. You'd have to ask my uncle that. But <laughs> <laughs> I was involved with a lot of sports, actually, when I was younger. So climbing was my tertiary activity. Most mm. people don't know that. What was, was primary, secondary? Um, ski racing was my first sport that I was in. I skied from the age of six. And then I got very serious about it. I spent more time skiing than anything else when I was younger. With Small my brother. or what event? All, all, well, all at that time, there were three events. And then they introduced Super G finally. Okay. But I raced slalom GS downhill. And then they introduced Super G. I was more adept at bump skiing. I'd really like to thrash the bumps. And ski racing I got into because my parents were encouraging me, hey, if you want a lift ticket, you should work for it. So go join the ski patrol. So I went and got my event CPR, advanced first aid and all that. Nice. And I went out for ski patrol. And after one meeting, I realized that this was not the group of people I wanted to roll with at all. I mean, my friends and I were there. And we just thought it'd be fun because we'd be skiing. And this is not at all the way that we go about skiing. And we're not into being... I realized that at the time, I saw them kind of like cops. And I'm like, I want to be a robber. I don't want to be a cop. How do I get on the other side of that? How do I get on the other side of the deal where I'm the one doing the running, not the chasing? So, you know, I, I think I went to one ski patrol meeting. Then I went out for the little ski tryout. And I realized, well... I definitely ski much better than all these people, which nothing against them, but this is not going to lead to me ripping necessarily. So I need to find another plan. And my friend's like, well, let's go up for ski team. And I'm like, oh yeah, that'd be fun. Cause we've been going to all these places like Durango and stuff, bump skiing and powder skiing with our parents. And we would always go cut into the race course and try to run a couple gates until we either wiped out or got busted or blew out of the course, you know, the robbers. You guys so yeah, we were already jacking time on GS courses whenever we could get to them in Colorado, you know, getting our lift tickets yanked, doing the, the last run was always a sprint for the bottom downhilling. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just like trying to be quasi racing on yeah. the mountain. And so we realized, well, let's join the ski team. And, and, um, so we went out for the Sandia ski team and, and that was a blast, you know, got me working with coaches and got me, um, it's an individual sport, but you have to, you're working in a group, you know, yeah. you're being trained. And so I had a blast with that, grew up on the mountain, ski racing at Sandia and Santa Fe and then traveling all over the, the Southwest and, and going to races. And then I also grew up playing soccer. Okay. So those were the two things in tandem. So climbing was very much in the background. Uh, soccer was super serious for me. I used to go to soccer camps in California and I won most valuable player several times at different soccer camps in California. And I know I was, I was pretty good and I was offered a scholarship to UNM when I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. Um, which they should be doing because they should recruit juniors, but <laughs> what, they do. What position? Did I you played play? midfield. I started out playing outside back yeah. as very, in that time period, outside back position was defensive. Now it's an yeah. attacking, overlapping yeah. position the way the game's played. And then I, moved into the midfield and I played well on the left and the right side. So coaches liked to play me because I was, hard. I like to work hard. I like to run a lot. I like to challenge defensively. And uh, several times I led the high school league in assists. Nice. So I consider myself a, an assister and a hard worker. I don't, I'm not a goal hog or anything like that. I wasn't a big scorer until I started playing indoor. I was just a really good facilitator on the field and coaches like that. And you went to Sandia, right? I went to Sandia. And I had all foreign soccer coaches. I had oh, wow. initially, uh, initially a Mexican coach who sent me to try out for Duke City because uh, I was playing AYSO yeah, and yeah. getting very frustrated because he said, you're too competitive, you're too rough, just go play in this other league. And, and then played for a Scottish coach, which really changed 
my attitude towards sports in general. My parents didn't want me doing dangerous sports, and I wasn't big enough to play football or basketball anyway. I wasn't one of those kids who was going to try to do something he wasn't really built for. But I think they were a little surprised when I got out on the soccer field and the, the Scottish coach was very aggressive. Uh, he was an educated man, but he was a blue-collar coach. And there's a, a UNM professor. His name is Craig Robertson. And um, he, he, he wanted us to be very aggressive and very competitive and do or die. And, and I think I was really good because my mother was trying to shelter me with soccer. Mm-hmm. But Craig referred to soccer as football. So he mm-hmm. wanted it rough and he wanted us to play, play with all of our heart. And um, that taught me a lot about being passionate about training and my, my intention and working hard for other people you know, not letting other people down. But I found soccer very frustrating, even though I was decent at it because it was very confined with boundaries and Mm. outside extrinsic boundaries, you know, not interdeveloped boundaries that you create for yourself. Um, It just in the sense that unless you're very, very good, it's very hard to express yourself playing a team sport often. I find individual sports were more expressive. So I found myself ditching soccer to go ski and then ditching ski practice to go climb. I was just looking Mm. for the independence, the the individual uh, self-expression that you could find in, in these other sports. Yeah. So was soccer the first time that you started approaching like training and looking at yourself as an athlete or did that happen before with... With skiing, or was it kind of something that... Skiing was just taught by ski instructors and ski racers, and it's a party culture. Yeah. Um, I'd have a natural proclivity to train, so when I would watch on TV the Olympians and look at how they train, I would go try to emulate it on my own, but that doesn't mean I was doing it right, but I have a proclivity for training. At a young age. At a very young age. I I was always someone on the ski team who would train separately or train with a small group of friends Mm preseason or in soccer. I was always the one on two or three teams, probably playing too much, but... I was always the one going for an extra run or doing legs or doing whatever I could to be better. I did not have a problem sitting there juggling a ball for an hour or kicking the ball against a wall. Not, not that that even arguably helps you, yeah. but I don't have a problem putting in the extra time. Yeah. Um, being the first one to practice, last one to leave, that was definitely me. I mean, I had to be told to stop, and <laughs> that affects your school, obviously. But, yeah. but having foreign coaches like the Scottish coach, then an English coach, you know, Mexican coach, Brazilian coach a Greek coach, uh, that just gave me a sense of wanting to participate in something that had an international flair to it. Mm. I realized it wasn't about the soccer or the football, you know, it was about the, it was about interacting with foreign people and being influenced by these cultures. Cause whenever our coach changed on our team and I stayed with the same club team through middle school and high school, uh, you know, we got, we, the, the, the food and the language and the attitude and the culture would come with the new coach, not just the new coach. So everything changed. So you get the whole influence yeah. from that person. And I always thought that was really cool. I always looked up to people from other countries and thought highly of people who spoke multiple languages and thought that that was the type of adult I wanted to be without really knowing exactly what I wanted to do. But to answer your question, Javier, about when I realized I was talented at climbing, I think it it was more an evolution away from doing other things because I was seeking self-expression. I wasn't looking at myself as someone who was talented at one thing or the other. I was looking for a way to express myself that I couldn't quite derive in the other activities. Right. So I was just struggling to self-express and climbing seemed to offer that outlet through the type of movement and what it required and the exploration and development of areas and, and travel and the interesting people that you would meet. And I love the idea of, of using sports to become an ambassador to the world, or rather like sports are, an, are the world's ambassador to you. You know, you find out about the world 
through sports, like you say, you know, when you're when the coach changed, the whole team changed, the whole culture of everything yeah. changed, and you had already done a bunch of international travel. Um, when you were traveling in your youth, did were you were you climbing? I was, and when I went to that? Europe, I climbed at some gyms, went to some climbing areas, and it blew my mind because climbing was in a very different place in Europe than it was in the United States. The only contact I had with climbing in the U.S. on that level was through the French magazines, mm. foreign mags. There was no internet. Climbing wasn't really televised very much. So you really had to fight for it. You really had to want it. Every little crumb that you could get, you would savor. You know, <laughs> you would study it before you'd eat it. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it was very dependent upon travel to go and, and experience those things and learn about new things. Um, and I think when I got back from Europe... In 86, I decided that, wow, this is really going off over there. And this is, it's real. It's not just a photo in the magazine. And, and, um, I came home and dislocated, dislocated my elbow actually at U-Mound, had a really bad full posterior dislocation. And I, I mean, up until that point when I was 16, I would say that I was probably riding a little bit off climbing talent and definitely willing to work hard, but just winging it to a certain extent, just doing what I thought strong climbers did. In addition to all my skiing and antics and ditching school and, and soccer. I mean, yeah. if you're going to try to play soccer, ski race, and climb, you're ditching a lot of yeah. school. I mean, it's, yeah. there's no other way around it because climbing requires a lot of time. So I was already scheming a lot, and and I realized that I had to be scheming more about my training. So I actually went into gymnastics. I wanted to be a gymnast actually at a younger age, but my brother wound up going into gymnastics. And my parents didn't want us being competitive, so they tried to keep us in different sports. Wise. Yeah, you know, very wise. <laughs> Doesn't usually but I work. wanted to be a gymnast, and I think, you know, I was built for it, and I yeah. had the, the right fiber type. And I, So I spent some time training with, at Gold Cup Gymnastics here in Albuquerque under Ed Birch, and they had actually produced a lot of Olympians. So a lot of the guys I was exposed to in strength training were became olympians and trent demas is one of them he's my age he won a gold medal 92 in barcelona he's from albuquerque um a lot of great athletes like cheney umfrey came out of that program brandy woods was a junior olympic international competitor he now owns a gym in albuquerque um lance ringnold who also went to the olympics was Mm -hmm. in my age group so i had a very difficult situation coming in at 16 and training with these guys. I wasn't doing gymnastics, but I was doing their warm up routines, their flexibility and the strength training with them. And that really shot my, my climbing through the roof. Cause I, I got this dislocated elbow and then I basically had blown off playing soccer. I didn't even go to tryouts my senior year. I thought, screw it. I don't care. I'm going to, I'm going to climb. Yeah. And, and then I decided when I had a dislocated elbow that I should go back out for the soccer team. And, and, uh, I was denied actually by the soccer coach because he said that just because you're talented doesn't mean you can just walk on, walk <laughs> on and walk off whenever you, yeah, want, whenever you want, you know, and like, no, you it was a new year. coach. It was a new, new coach and he didn't like me. I won't get into why he didn't like me, but he was always the JV coach. So I never really cared for him. Still don't care for him much, but I do appreciate him telling me to shit or get off the pot. And it really helped my development as a, as an athlete to say, all right, this isn't that important. Otherwise I would have been here all summer. These yeah, guys, yeah. instead I went to Europe instead. I, I decided to go bouldering and dislocate my elbow. Now I'm going to have to make my bed and sleep in it. So that was actually very pivotal. And the decision being made for me or someone yeah, facilitating, he, he helped. Push yeah. He actually way. helped me. Even though he pissed me off, he really yeah. helped me. It was good, tough love. He was yeah. right. 
I wouldn't allow anyone to walk in any sports team like that, no matter how good they were, no matter how much the rest of the team wanted them. It's not fair to the guys who put in the work, you know, and I never had these parents who were going to go tell a soccer coach to play me if I'd missed practice. They they were always going to defer to the coaches, but I still did play club and indoor my senior year. And UNM was still interested in me, even though I didn't play for San Diego my senior year. Mm -hmm. So I didn't care. I was like, well, I'm going to go play college soccer. I don't need this shit anyway. (laughs) Uh, But it was kind of the beginning of the end because I was also tampering more with climbing and having to work through that dislocated elbow and that injury increased my conviction to train for climbing because I really had to think about my training. Yeah. And I was exposed to a higher level of, of athletics through the Gold Cup gymnastics. Yes. Was there anybody else training at Gold Cup uh, for climbing? No. Were you, were you hanging out around other strong climbers at all? Uh, all the climbers who were stronger during that time period were usually older working professionals. Mm college students, a lot of professors and college collegiately affiliated professionals and, uh, you know, the foreign students like Bertrand Gromont moved here from France and he, you know, he was a grad student at New Mexico tech. My influences were older guys from other countries. Usually Jean de la Taillade moved here from France also, or New York, then, then the U S or when he moved to the U S went to New York, then New Mexico. Um, and, and so I, they were all older influences. I mean, it, I was the only guy really who I knew in high school who at my high school who was climbing. I was always one getting other guys into it. There were other guys at other high schools at the same time that I wound up meeting like Matt Samet, Johnny Myrick, um, Jason Predock was a gymnast who also got into climbing. I was probably the one who was most motivated for training and the one who was training the most outside of just going climbing. And I'm a couple years older than Matt and Johnny, so okay. I was already on to it. Uh, and I didn't meet them really until I think I was in college because they're a few years younger than me. So, at, yeah, at that time, it, I was getting as sports specific as I could, but I was very limited by the information that I had access to. That's amazing. It sounds like a great opportunity that, to train with these Olympians. Yeah, I had to go outside of the box if yeah. you know, without even knowing what the box was at the time. You know? <laughs> what did they think of you? What did they think of this, this young hotshot climber? They liked me. They already knew me because yeah. they're, my brother was going to gymnastics practice six days yeah. a week. And my father okay. is a, was an international gymnastics judge. So he judged locally, then regionally, then national juniors. Then he judged NCAAs. Then he judged European championships and World Cups. So they were, they, our family ever knew everyone in the gymnastics community because my brother and father were heavily involved with gymnastics. Mm-hmm. So I was already friends with a lot of these guys. Yeah. So then I was just coming to the gym, getting beaten on by them. And <laughs> yeah, it was tough. You know, they're strong. But it was cool when I started to rise to more prominence, you know, and yeah. started to do things they couldn't do because I, I was training specifically for a different event. So, um, yeah, I got some respect. But I have the ultimate respect for gymnasts. I, mean, yeah. I, I trained with them for climbing. I am not a gymnast, do not purport to be a gymnast. I love and appreciate gymnastics, though. I watch it in the Olympics, World Championships. absolutely love watching gymnastics, men's and women's. The strength-to-weight ratio that gymnasts usually carry is like ideal for climbing, and usually you try to get to that level. But gymnasts, it's a whole... It's oh, they're a on a whole other level. And their mechanical advantage is superior because most of them, a lot of the men... You know, even the the smaller men weigh what I weigh now, which is about 135 to 140 pounds, but they're like four inches shorter. Yeah, so they're packing all that muscle into a much smaller frame and um, they just have mastery of their bodies, you know. Yeah. I think dance and gymnastics are a great way to prepare for climbing and develop proprioception. 
Absolutely. Did you train? Did you train dance as well? I did. I, I actually always thought dance was really cool. Enjoyed watching it when I was in high school, and when I went to college, I took two years of ballet. And cool. it, and they, actually, they wanted me in the dance program because they they needed men. Like I didn't know this, but at, when nice. you're 18, if you're athletic and you want to dance, they'll take you. Yeah. <laughs> and right. so the dance instructor had been in the Royal Ballet, and he was. Um, he was trying to get me in the program and told me yeah. to get me a scholarship at another school. And I was like, no, I'm just doing this for training. You know? And, and ballet is hellacious, man. It is very hard on the body. I have never been so worked in my legs. Like bar classes. Oh my God. Yeah. I've heard about that. There's like <laughs> NFL athletes doing that stuff. Like yeah. That's know. why I did it. I'm like, Lynn Swan did this in the NFL. <laughs> These wide receivers were doing it. I mean, maybe I should get into it too, but I, I, a lot of the training I do now is still ballet influence. We can talk about that later, but yeah, I, I did a couple, you know, a couple years of gymnastics strength training to learn about that. A couple years of ballet training to learn about that. And I've integrated those things into my climbing specific training. So those things, those were the influences. We didn't have climbing gyms, right? You had to go after it yourself. You had to find rock on your own. You had to develop rock on your own. Yes. I based my, the college that I wanted to go to was CSU. I based my decision on where the rock was following John Gill. Uh, I was a Gill disciple. I, he was a rock gymnast. I wanted to be a rock gymnast. So I was following, I wanted to go repeat all of his problems, you know. So that's, that's why I chose CSU. I wanted to be in the front range climbing in the, in El Dorado Canyon, which is where my parents had sent me when I was 15 to, t- to take my first kind of formal climbing lessons, if you will, even though my uncle had taught me, my parents wanted to send me to a school to make sure I knew what I was doing. And, you know, those trips made a big impact on me and influenced my decision as to where I wanted to go to school. And Colorado was a much different place in the late 80s. You know, I'd gone to soccer tournaments there too and ski races, and now it's just completely overrun. I mean, it's... Uh, the front range has grown a lot, that whole area between Boulder and Fort Collins. But it, it used to be really fun. I mean, you used to be able to ride your bike... Uh, pretty fast and safely from Boulder to Fort Collins on these back farm roads. No way. I mean, it was far, but you could, even if you weren't like a hardcore cyclist it, riding fast, you could do it. And and now it's, uh, there's trails, but there's a lot more traffic. You sure. Know? Yeah. There's so many people. It's in insane. At the moment. Yeah. The whole front range at Longmont area, the whole area is just filled in so, yeah. since I went to college, but my decisions were based on climbing, not school. Um, I definitely screwed up a lot in college, dropped out three times, and third time never went back. I'm, Sweet. I was a semester short and just stopped fighting it. Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't. Just, well, it sounds like... just like, wasn't for me. Right before senior year, you had, like, made that decision to climb. And yeah. All of like your my decisions... my sophomore, junior yeah. year, I was training more for it, and then I really got more committed because I, I just started getting rid of other things. I stopped uh-huh. ski racing before I went to college. In you know, my senior year, I ski raced... It's like I tapered all the sports off, basically. Trim the fat. Yeah. Focus. Got into gymnastics, got into ballet, just started replacing things. Yeah. And and then stopped skiing. I think the last time I'd skied was when I was 19, and then I just started again two years ago because I didn't want to get injured. So I didn't ski once in 24 years. Whoa. After just a youth of skiing all the time. Interesting. Skiing, I didn't know that. Not a lot, but, you know, 60 days a year. That's I'd a lot. Ski, you know, <laughs> not a ton. But enough to be decent at yeah. it and, and going to a lot of ski races and exhausting my parents over it. Um, I think my parents may have been a little frustrated with me because I was the kind of student who tested high and had very mediocre grades. 2.7 student. Spent more time negotiating to get out of class and actually doing the work. <laughs> uh, you know, I was always that kind of student, but 
always testing in the top 5% mm-hmm. on SAT and ACT. So very frustrating for my parents to see that I could produce more, but just was very disinterested. Um, luckily, I had some really cool grandparents who introduced me to philosophy and literature at cool. age 14, 15. I was introduced to existentialism and Eastern thought and yogic philosophy by my great-grandmother, Alma, and, and then by my grandmother, Charlotte, who was a very progressive thinker. So I had good literary influences in my family that helped me follow a non-traditional path but, but build intellect at the same time. And I think a lot of students need that. You know, Not every student is built for the classroom. If you're getting bad grades but testing really, really high, like you need to be doing all of these other non-traditional things to to influence the kind of intelligence you're working with. And so I think you did the exact right thing. You're like, no, I'm going to do this activity, and then I'm going to do this activity, and I'm going to live this patchwork lifestyle and make myself more holistic, right? Did you? Were you, Is that how you were thinking about it, like a holistic thing? Yeah, I wanted a big-picture vision. I didn't feel like I was being taught how to think, or I wasn't being taught perspective necessarily in school and I thought a lot of my teachers were there were very few who I thought were wise or cared education has evolved considerably I think it's gotten harder to be a teacher but there are more alternatives there's more charter schools I mean if you went to a charter school in the 80s uh, you were a reject I mean you'd made a mistake that's where the pregnant girls went you know you you weren't supposed to be going to Freedom High. Well, now Freedom High is cool. Yeah. And I always wanted to go to Freedom High. I didn't want to be messing around with all this. Well, and in Santa Fe, like all of all of our youth in Santa Fe want to go to the charter schools. Yeah, like, the, the it used teachers, to have more of a liberation. Yeah, it was very much a stigmatized practice back then. It was like you screwed up, you made a mistake. Instead of acknowledging that, hey, I'm just not cut out to, to sit in a class with these buffoons who are going to be sheep and you know, corporate middle management later in life. I, I just, I'm not on the same path. I need to be around creative types, self-driven right. types. My yeah. senior year, I actually had accumulated enough credit from European travel and writing papers, independent studies that I only needed a half schedule my senior year nice. of high school. So I was able to arrange, um, to go to night school at UNM and climb during the day. And I had my credits transferred from UNM nice. to my high school diploma. Can you walk us through a, typical day in your climbing at that point like what did it what did it look like were you developing what, what did you have a crash pad what is oh no we didn't have crash pads yeah that was before that was before that time <laughs> no, there was no. i mean if you had a piece of carpet with some carpet foam on the bottom it was considered cheating yeah just because you didn't want bruised heels it's like hey i'm still gonna get a busted knee at least let me not bruise my heels every time i step off the rock um that's a typical day would be I'd go report in the morning for high school and do my two classes. Then I would get an assignment, a home assignment, because I had another class that was I wasn't having to report to, but I had to fulfill. And then I would leave and go have lunch. And then I would go to the rock and climb. And then some days I'd still go ski. I'd use the liberty to ski in the afternoon. At San Diego. Yeah, because okay. I had a pass. Yeah. So I could, you know, go up the, I had to tram pass. Yeah. Uh, and then I would go over to Gold Cup Gymnastics when team practice would start. And that usually be about 4 o'clock and strength train and do flexibility for two hours. And then I would go take night class at UNM, like 7 to 9 p.m. And I really liked that. I really enjoyed going to college as a high school student. That was cool. Oh, yeah. Older, good-looking chicks, smart <laughs> professors. Yeah, it was stimulating. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked that. Sure. Um a lot of freedom. You know, I had to drive, so yeah. it was it was good to have that freedom and create my own structure. I responded 
more favorably to a structure that I created yeah. than one that was imposed upon me. Even though it seems like a full day. It was like, yeah, it was a longer day than yeah. most students had. I would rather do that personally than um, take a traditional pattern and and bore myself all day. Well, you were saying yes to so many experiences that spoke to what you were doing. There's no way that can be wrong. You know, like you were just doing all of the right things and just packing your days super, super full. Yeah. I was trying to be driven. Yeah. And, and music was there. As I told you, Javier, there, you know, I played band in elementary and middle school on trumpet then got moved to French horn, had tried violin in first grade. And my mom really wanted me to play violin. And mm-hmm. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not an overachieving little Asian genius. So it just was not working. All these little Chinese American chicks are just ripping on a violin in this class. I can't do that. I just wasn't right. about it, man. I just, I didn't <laughs> like the violin much. And, and it almost ruined me. I think a lot of kids get ruined for music and sports. Cause they just get pushed into the wrong thing instead yeah. of what they ought to do is line up all the instruments on the floor and see which one you're attracted yeah. to. Maybe, I don't know. It had to be more of a tactile thing. Yeah. Cause I found like when I got the right instrument in my hand, it just, it just felt right. It just felt like an extension of my body. I'm like, I, I can't play it worth a damn, but it feels good. So yeah. Yeah. well, like same thing with sports, like try climbing, try this, try that. And, exactly. if, and then the youth can decide like what they want to do. Yeah. And I think that's so much that that happened to me. So I went to, I, I think it was Duke city gym as a gymnast and they had a climbing gym in the back. Yep. And, and I used to train there actually. And so I would ditch gymnastics class a fair amount and go climb. And so eventually I got kicked out of gymnastics cause they were like, you're a liability. You can't be climbing back here. And I actually didn't know about this story. My mom recently told me about it maybe five years ago or so. I was like, well, why didn't you put me in climbing? And she had a lot of reasons for not doing it because it was non-traditional because it was right. dirt bag. End because, up with a dirt bag. Yeah. And so, but it was like, well, obviously I was getting kicked out of the sport that you had pushed me to do and I was doing something else. But it was like, if that was open, I probably would have started climbing then and continued on that path. Absolutely. There was a resistance to yeah. what I was doing simply because the adults in my life, A, didn't understand it. And B, what they did understand caused fear because mountaineering and climbing, alpine climbing are dangerous. Yeah. And they didn't understand how to differentiate between rock climbing and those other activities or bouldering. Do you think that was part of like the resistance was part of the reason that you were more drawn to Probably. It? <laughs> with your, yeah, I mean, we just, have, we've known each other for a long yeah. time. So that kind of. Yeah. Uh, it just coincided with being generally rebellious and wanting to define myself and needing an outlet for self-expression through that type of movement and self-discovery going into the outdoors and reading philosophy and thinking for myself, exercising free will. Um, I just felt like it corresponded with my values. I felt like it was a, a it was providing an environment and an experience and, and physical and mental demands that were facilitative for self-development. And I think a lot of sports don't require self-development, even if you're very proficient in the sport. I felt like climbing was going to require it out of me. Yeah. And that seemed very enticing at a young age. The mental physical demand of climbing is beautiful. I haven't done anything else. I'm really interested in MMA and jujitsu and people talk about it there as well. And I, I, I see a lot of parallels and I'm interested in that world, but yeah, climbing the first time I did it was just like, whoa, I'm like taxed mentally, physically, spiritually because of everything, like all the temporal aspect of climbing a project. It was all there. It, it was engages all the full system. Yeah. 
It engages the brain and the nervous system on a very complex high level, the consciousness. Uh, you have to use your analytical skills, your creative problem solving, and you have to use your intuition Yeah, a lot. Have you found anything else, any other activity that, that forces you into that kind of full being engagement? Um, music. Music, yeah. Yeah, I think the physicality of certain instruments, like percussion instruments or, you know, a trumpet, because you're blowing and it's physical to play well, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're blowing. Oh. You're, you're fighting for air, you know, or any instrument. It's hard to, to strum as fast as you can or to control to not do too much. It's like with climbing, you're having to energy regulate. And with an instrument, you need to energy regulate. You need to inflect. You need yeah. to interpret. There's a lot going on. Uh, uh, sight reading really, in my mind, translates to on-site climbing and flashing. Mm-hmm. Being able to visualize and hear your song that you've composed but can't play perfectly. It's just like working a project and then needing to clean it up. It's A lot of these things, this is a physical thing, even though it's visualization. The brain is operating physically. It's very engaged. It's very fatiguing and it builds strength. Mm-hmm. Um, it's expressive. I th- I think every sport, well, any activity, but but even narrowing it down to athletics, any sport is an art and can be fully self-expressive and engaging on the highest level if you're good enough at it. I think that Lionel Messi probably finds that with football, but I wasn't as good as him at that, so it didn't feel the same. Yeah. I mean, there would be brief moments of it, but that feeling that full release and transcendence very hard to get. I think, you know, if you're Bodie Miller and you're ski racing, you can feel it skiing. I couldn't get it even skiing. Sometimes right. glimpses of it, well, so pieces I, of it, but not a full run of it like a real world-class skier. But climbing, I could get it. Right it just away. felt more accessible to me because maybe because I was more built for it. I had the right mindset for it, whatever it was. Yeah. It just resonated with my soul. Yeah. But other activities, yeah, I see it could happen. I mean, you could get it playing linebacker in the NFL if you move perfectly. And I don't think... I think climbing is special, but I don't think that it is the only way to get it. I think yeah. that athletes can find it in running. Running is a beautiful sport that I like to do. Uh, there, there's, I mean, there's an internal game with it. There's a lot of detail to how you distribute your energy and how you focus yourself. Every activity has it. Yeah. Every activity. Every activity. I like the idea of monks sweeping. You know, the monks like to sweep in a very meditative way, and that is their flow state right then. Or, you know, washing the dishes or whatever it is, whatever whatever it is for you at that moment. Um, but you're right. Some activities, it's much harder to reach. I've played guitar now for 22 years, and it wasn't until, like, a few years ago that I became aware that I was able to be present in the moment through being just completely immersed in the moment. And I was selfless in that, and I was gone, but I was there. And that took... That took like decades to get to that point. But with climbing, it was almost immediate. Climbing is more engaging physically than music. I mean, yeah. You can be a fat musician, but you're not going to get very far being a fat climber. Yeah. So I'm not knocking on music because it, it does stimulate the brain in other ways in more advanced fashion that will help would help a climber. Um, but I feel that way with music. I feel like if there's anything I missed out on by focusing so heavily on athletics and particularly climbing, it would be uh, music. Mm. I miss music in my life. And that's something that I'd like to bring back into my life as an adult. And it's really hard to bring something back that you know you're not going to be very good at and you're used to being good at things. Mm. It's really hard to suck at something. you know. <laughs> but it's been on the bucket list for a while is to get a trumpet or a flugelhorn, really, in my case, because of my embouchure and 
try to go for it again, take some lessons and reintegrate that. Cause I like the way it stimulates my body and my brain and my being there's, I don't think there's any one thing that we can do to fully express ourselves. I think we need multiple outlets is what I'm saying. We need, that's really interesting. An athletic, a musical, like even within athleticism, there's aspects of strength training that I like more than the climbing itself. There's aspects of climbing that I like more than other aspects of climbing. There's aspects of running that I prefer over climbing. I love when I run, I am fully engrossed in running and I don't care about climbing. Even if I know I'm trying to train for climbing or recover for climbing, I am all about it. Yeah. I love it. And it, it offers me something that climbing doesn't offer me and it overlaps with climbing a little bit too. It helps it and it can, it can complement it. But when I'm running, I'm present as a runner. I work on precision in my stride. I run like a real runner. Yeah. Even I don't have the full capacity of a, of a world-class runner. I, I, feel like I'm a runner when I'm doing it. And I think right. it's important that people manifest different ways. There's one yeah. way may not be enough. Absolutely. Well, you've been super inspiring to me because you, like from the first time I met you, you took what was your passion climbing and you built your life around that with other things that you looked at. And in the dead point magazine article, you talk about like climbing as Kung Fu, like you, I can tell, have taken these things and you're like trying to master them. Like everything is an art. Like your business with futurist is an art training for climbing, uh, climbing itself, running, you know, all of these music, all of these pieces. And for me, that's just so inspiring because the other side of the coin is like the white collar. You're going to get this job and you're going to work it and that's going to be your life. And it's like, no, like I see people do it and it's so, so inspiring to me. I think it's important to have a life's work and I appreciate that you can recognize that and it evolves over time. Yeah. Yeah. Like before I had futurist, I was still, it was my life's work. And before I was doing the things before futurist, I was competing. And before that I was was into it and, and developing it, you know, and I, I think a lot of people get in and out of things in a faddish manner and they're not seeking themselves through the activity. So they're like with me, with music, it just didn't happen. So I dropped it mm-hmm. and now I'm realizing I should have kept it. Um, some people with their climbing, they will drop it because it's not working the way they thought it would, or they're not up for the challenge to be who they need to be to mm-hmm. uphold it. Or they, aren't getting the return on investment yeah. or their gauge for what the return really is, is calibrated a certain way. And until you get older, you don't have the perspective to recalibrate the, the gauge. You don't know what the return is sometimes until you play your guitar for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't know the ROI until you go really far down the path. Yeah. And a lot of people give up on it or deviate from the path just as I did with other paths. So I'm not criticizing people. We all do. It's human nature. Totally. We, well, we have multiple iterations of ourselves. Yeah. We always move through. Exactly. Could I have been a better soccer player than I was? Absolutely. Would I have been as good as I am at climbing? Probably not. Same with ski racing. Could have been a lot better. Probably couldn't have been as good or as fulfilled as climbing music. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe think- good, maybe more fulfilled, even if I'm not as good. And part of the problem is people stop something when they're not good. They're not thinking in terms of their health with it. Mm. You know, I only have so much time in the day to run. Yeah. And my training only requires that I run like two hours a week. But when I interval run, I run hard. Yeah. I'm running fast for me. For a guy who's only running 12, 15 miles a week, I'm I'm putting in some hard interval time out there. You know, I'm not yeah. I'm not knocking down a four-minute mile, but I can probably run a five-minute mile and I'm not yeah. even a runner. No so shit. I'm trying I train hard when I run. I mean, it's yeah. business time. So 
Um, I think it, it's, it depends on, is my ROI good on running? I'd say it's outstanding, actually, <laughs> because I'm putting in very little time. I'm training smart. I'm loving every minute of it, and I wish I were doing more. It's like a good film. You know? yeah. <laughs> if you're getting too much, you're overtrained, you regret it, you're lost, you lose your motivation. Running's one of those things I wish I had more of in my yeah. diet. But if I'm going to keep climbing hard, I, I can't overdo it. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and then in some areas of our lives, we fall deficient because we lose the faith in what it's going to yield or what it's bringing us, or we fail to see what it is, what it has already brought us in terms of our overall health and our mental well-being, not just our capacities. Um, I think people have a problem with realizing that they're not potentiating themselves and all of their talent. So they give up. Well, you know, I think that's a big problem with climbers when they're a competitive athlete and then they stop competing they're done because they're no longer the best. They're no longer. Num- mm-hmm. There's not a number one, two, three, four, five next to their name. No one remembers who they are. No one cares about what they did. And then we're going to see who the lifetime climbers are. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody can go out and pop a few comps. Anyone can go out and pop a couple of hard things here or there. Mm-hmm. But to actually stay relevant for two, three decades in an activity, to transition your passion like you're talking about, to make it a career, to contribute to the activity, yeah. to, con- to evolve the activity to keep placing demands on yourself to be better, that's a different type of person. Yeah. And, and I'm not l- looking down on anybody. I'm just saying there's a lot of guys I know who I looked up to who no longer climb at all. I won't name yeah. them, but it's a shame. There's guys I competed against who, you know, they stop competing and they gain weight. They don't care how out of shape they are. That's not me. Yeah. Even if I'm not competing, I, I actually give a damn how hard I'm climbing. I actually, even if I'm not going to the rock, I care how hard I'm putting out on the wall. Well, no I joke think, about it. Like yeah. I, my 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 identity as a human being is very much tied to how physically fit I am and how focused I am and how how I'm able to place demands on myself. I think a lot of people don't place enough demands on themselves. So they don't get to the twenty year mark with a guitar and discover that yeah. state or get to the next layer of that state. That's what I'm seeking through my climbing, and yeah. I know that it's going to require more hard work and more commitment and more insight and more out of me as a person to get there. But I'm a lifelong climber. And that's the beauty of our sport. It's like surfing. My friend, Nick Spiegel, who's one of my sports chiropractors who I respect very much. You know, Nick said that, you you know, I'm lucky because I'm in an activity that you can pursue meaningfully after you compete. And NFL is not like that. It chews you up and spits you out. That's right. It's hard on your body. You know, it's hard on you financially. It brings you highs and lows. It's a it's a huge media thing, and he thinks surfing, climbing, a lot of the action sports are rad because you can stay in them totally. even if you don't compete. But if you did compete, you're not necessarily done. You can still push yourself. There there are different outlets. So in that regard, it can be lifelong, like music. That's what I really Absolutely. like about music. It's a lifelong pursuit. And as an athlete, we struggle with that as we age. It's hard to see our mortality coming upon us yeah. through our bodies yeah. with music you can get better with age mm-hmm. so that's a gift sure to, to, you know to fill your life that way but i've often thought with my climbing maybe i can pursue it like music maybe i can view it that way because with music you know guys like clark terry empower other musicians before they die they produce other people they influence even if they're not playing as much mm. there's still ways of of contributing of to, being musical. Of being musical. There's still ways of being athletic without being the athlete in the competition. Yeah. You can be a, a trainer. You can be a coach. You can write books. You can conduct research. All these things 
uh, some of the, I haven't written a book, but a lot of the other things I have done, yeah. I, I want to contribute in other ways, not just in the actual physicality of my own climbing, but make no mistake, I'm still upholding my physicality too. I'm not going to let that go because I, I need it to yeah. help. I, I need it to be relevant, to understand what's going on in my industry. And, and I'm very real about it. All the people I looked up to when I was younger were people who had longevity as athletes. Yeah. They're people who were self-driven beyond what the coach demanded, the sport demanded, the team demanded, the competitor, the competition. They were people who timelessly pushed themselves and they were able to transcend with their character. Yeah. And, and their souls were inextricably tied to that modality of self-expression, which I think is, is beautiful if you can find that, but you've got to work for it. Yeah. It doesn't come for free. It doesn't fall on your lap. You've so, got to well, go I think after it. Your, your send this year at 46 of It was throwback. last year. It was 2015. Oh, 2015. Was, January 1, 20, or now January. Now it's December of December. Oh, the video We're in 2016, out. baby. Yeah. So that a year was, and a half ago. That's in Well, no, that was like eight months ago, nine months ago now. Oh, the tail end of last year. Yeah, okay, December okay. of 2015. Okay. Of, at, of throwback V15. Yeah, that's when I sent it. Yeah. I mean, I think that... For me, I, I've seen you crush in the game room, and that for me is like, yes, Timmy is an artist in climbing. Like, that is a life's work, man. Like, you can you speak to like walking up to that problem and kind of everything that happened? Oh, I'd first your... seen it, and actually, it's funny when I gave the DPM interview, I, I first thought I'd first seen it in 2006, and That's... then my longtime friend Lewis Rutherford, who was just visiting me, um, who played a crucial role in my development as an athlete. Um, and a lot of development in New Mexico. Uh, Lewis was here last week and he's like, Oh, we looked at that when I brought you up to do Moab roof back in 91, you know, but looking at it, not with a very well-trained eye, there's no way I really saw that it would go or uh, I was more dreaming that, Whoa, this would be amazing. But in 2006 is when I really walked up to it and thought this goes, this, this could go, this is a good line. This is a real line. Um, I was there with Jake Lawrence, who is now a professional ultramarathon runner. He used to live with Brandy and I, who's our roommate, mm-hmm. and he's a trainer. And uh, he was a collegiate wrestler and a great training partner. Super strong on the rings. The best strength training partner you could have. And, and climbed a little bit, but yeah. was really just a, a hoss to strength train with. And uh, he, he saw, he's like, man, you got you to do this thing. This thing is a, <laughs> it's a power Test, got you your know, name all over pure it. power man this is a gymnastics routine uh, he got me really st- he kind of egged me on for it um and and it was good to do it at a distance it's very specific it's very much in this injurious style where you can't spend much time on it and you know it's very gymnastic it's hard on the neck it's it's hard on the on the tendons on the right hand it's well, it's like anything else that's hard. It, it's, it's hard. It's hard. For you. Otherwise, it wouldn't be hard. You know, it's, it's a Ted. Luckily, it's close to the road. It's got a lot of easy aspects. You can pull onto it and work the damn thing. It doesn't have a bad landing. Yeah. There's nothing like that. Um, it's just a beautiful dance. This is one of the most beautiful uh, movement patterns I've ever surrendered myself to, quite honestly. It's, it's amazing. Even if it were four grades easier, the same moves, it'd just be beautiful. It's a beautiful dance yeah. to be danced. How many, how many hours did you spend working that? Oh, I don't know. Not that many because, you know, I, I would go for, I don't really get out there for three, four, five days a year for three years. Mm. And a lot of times I'd have weather issues and stuff. Um, but when I finally did it, I was, uh, last year, I think I was into my fifth day, fourth yeah. day on it. And it came back really fast. I felt like I could have done it 
two years before and a year before that, I just couldn't get that one or two more days on it. Like I'd get out there for three days and you can't work it three consecutive days. You, I had a really hard time working it one day on, one day off. Or if I work it two days on, you really don't want to be on it for a week to ten days. The burly nature. It's of the... just really hard on the shoulders, and it digs into your your fingers pretty hard. It has a, a very sharp radius beadwell on it. That's it's a game ender if you're not careful. If you don't have strong pocket strength, it's it's going to chew you up. Yeah, I think um, I remember you saying like one of the times we had spoken before that some other really strong climbers, like famous guys on the scene now had looked at it and pretty much said, nope, not going to try Yeah, a this. lot of guys just don't want to get on it who have talked mm-hmm. to about it. And Matt Gentile's working on it. I was going to ask if anyone's And, and I expect it. Matt to be able to do it. He's he's uh, really good in that style. Yeah. He's the strong man at priest draw, and he's up to the task. Initially, he wasn't about it. He's more into, like, endurance roof climbing, or power endurance roof climbing yeah. and high balling. And he actually lives really close to the problem. He lives closer to it than any other climber, so he should do it. It's in his, <laughs> quote, backyard. So he called me last spring and asked me some questions about it, and I was psyched to see that someone wanted to get on it. A lot of people, nice. I think in this day and age, people stay away from dangerous or injurious or sharp. or they, They're followers. They're not leaders. I mean, I'm from a generation where you go after things that no one else is trying. You go to areas no one else is going to. You you propose things that other people aren't willing to examine at all. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, like for instance, developing some areas in New Mexico. Um, Yeah. Early on, the development was just part of participating in the sport. It seemed like every guy I went out with was like, well, let's hike up there and look at this other boulder. Mm -hmm. You know, let's, let's hike up that Canyon. Have you seen anything up there? You just spend days hiking and then throwing down your pad or, or not before we had a pad, just, tinkering around top roping stuff trying to figure out what goes mm-hmm. you know looking for rock bushwhacking hiking and a lot of times i just schedule a hike and use that as an opportunity to go scope rock did you find the temple first i found well the progression is that we the main bouldering scene was in albuquerque was taking place at u-mound and then along the foothills People like John Duran were riding their mountain bikes looking for rock right. and exploring. And John, uh, Bob Murray would hike and look for rocks. And, and he he's very solitary in his pursuit of it, which I, I think the legends have in common. You know, the, the Holloways and the Gills and Skip Garens of the world. Those guys, are they were going out alone and looking for rock. And I think that, that that's really cool. It enables a lot of self-development and sometimes... It seems like you come up empty-handed a lot, but sometimes you come up with some beautiful lines. Um, you just have to walk and look for stuff. You right. Know? And when I started climbing, it was mainly track climbing with some sparsely bolted routes, kind of mixed, what we called mixed rock climbs. And style and ethics was a big issue of how you established a route, you know. And then with bouldering, people were just scrubbing the surface really they were just looking at it as training but the the general mentality was still to go look for new things or if someone found a new area for people to go there and check it out for people to take initiative to clear landings and clean rock it was just part of climbing you really couldn't climb very long if you didn't do that because there weren't that many climbers and there wasn't that much developed rock. I would say now per capita, there are way fewer developers than there used to be, even though there are a oh, hundred wow. times more climbers than 25 years ago. There are far fewer developers because everything's already done. 
you can go to so many areas and have a plethora of options. There's a plethora of areas. And a guidebook. Yeah, with a guidebook, with some guides. I mean, I was in this before they had certified guiding. So it's it's more codified, and that's good. It's more professionalized. It's it's got a framework now, but it's also attracting more followers. Yeah, and followers don't lead; they follow. And I think social media also contributes to that. People know more about what's going on, right. so it helps grow. It attracts more people, but they're also looking for what's promoted, what's popular, what's photographed, what's validated. In order for something to be. Um, recognized or in order for it to be validated it has to be recognized and it has no nothing to do really with whether it's legit a lot of times it just has to do with did it get some media play did it get a repeat or not Uh, it's interesting because it used to be if you put up something hard you're trying to put up something hard that you you don't want it to get repeated a lot well now if your if your lines don't get repeated no one cares about them it's Mm -hmm. almost like it's a consensus activity it's a Mm -hmm. It's a group activity, and I came up to this more. It was an individual activity, even though you worked with people and you you have your climbing partners and you you train together and you have spotters. It's there was still just a lot more time spent alone in your pursuit of whether it was the training, the climbing itself, or the exploration of the rock, and you weren't so much concerned about what anyone thought of your climbing. You weren't so much concerned about what whether your work product was even known Mm. even if you wanted it to be a good work product for other people like it had a standard to it it had to be cleaned well the landing had to be prepared even if you have a good work ethic you you weren't so concerned about well does it have 500 problems next to it it could be the best problem in the world but who cares if it has high density you just you're after the best problem that you can find regardless of the grade Um, it's definitely become a lot more grade driven. And I think that's changed the motives for people a lot. People would rather get on something that's known, popular, a manageable grade, a manageable style, maybe not stiff for the grade. Like people want to get rewarded for their work because they're trying to quantify the experience more. So it's attracting and breeding a different mentality is what it's doing. People with sponsorships that's pushing that way as well. People at the top end have to repeat problems from other people and, if it's developed, see the second ascent because, like, kind of yeah, what you're I talking so. about. I mean, now it's become like a more of a popularity contest in a media game. I mean, you could go out there and go do ten impossible problems, and if you don't publicize it, no one really cares. It used to be word of mouth would travel, and people go, "Wow, that's like a grandmaster," you know. <laughs> Whoa. Now it's like, well, it's not on Facebook. It don't matter. The summary. You didn't film it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it's funny because for a long time I've been out doing things and I won't make noise about it or I won't photo it or I won't film it. I might go back for a photo shoot. Now it's very immediate. We used to only take photos when, when a sponsor wanted somewhere you're doing a guide. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're doing a guidebook, but even then you don't necessarily care about sharing everything. You just right. do your thing. You bring your friends there, but you're not looking to advertise the area so much. You're just looking to create a, a dope photo of it. Yeah. You know, So if someone needs a dope photo for something, you go take a dope photo. And that I think that's a cooler way of exposing a line. I think now it's... We already know what's going on right when it's... It's like real time now, but it's in the outdoors. I kind of like the mystique of not exactly knowing what's going on and getting a little glimpse here and there, getting a piece of information, thinking about it, instead of just being flooded with every try. And I think it's funny that this generation likes to film and photo 
things they haven't done yet. And they talk a lot about what they're going to go do. I think that's really funny. Cause like back, you know, I've certainly been photoed on things I haven't done and, and I don't like it. You know, I don't, right. yeah. I've had to do it or it's just happened inadvertently. Yeah. But I think now there's an attitude of self-promotion where the self-promotion is more important than what's actually taking place. Yeah. And I was always under the impression that you really shouldn't be photoing yourself on something until you damn well did it. Yeah. You know, you don't get a photo of yourself falling off the same bull 10 times. Maybe the first couple goes out, you're going to get a photo. But after that, you got to stick that ride, man. You, you know, so there's a lot of that. You got to really look at the footnotes and the, yeah, yeah. know what you're looking at now in the media. I'm not saying people are lying about what they're doing. I mean, that's always been going on. Um, there's just a greater element of people sort of living vicariously through their own social yeah. media identity. And it's like, go do it. And like, you know, if you do it and you want to take a photo, that's fine. It's like, it's like you two signing. I remember back in the nineties, they signed a six record deal. I was like, I don't care who you are. You shouldn't get a six. How do you even know? You don't even know what your next 12 songs are going to be. Yeah. How do you know 60, 70, 70 songs 80 out. songs yeah. out? You're going to be worth a damn. Yeah. You, know, you should be fighting for each song, each note. And that's, I think that's a big thing that's changed is social media in general has made, you know, what people eat and poop every day. Interesting. And I just don't really care. I mean, sometimes it's nice to see a beautiful line. I'm working on this line. Fine. But you just hear about people. They just start talking a lot about what they're going to do. I want to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm working on this. I'm trying. It's just constant. And I don't think it's because they're necessarily trying to self promote. It's more that they just need to come up with something to create attention because that's the nature of, of, how people identify now with who they are is getting information out there. You need new information all the time. And the, the reality is you're not setting world record pace at any given time all the time. So it's, it's only a couple of, right yeah, exactly. I mean, the reality is you're going to have a couple good performances a year, maybe for yourself. True. Even if you're on a tear, if you're on a tear doing a bunch of hard stuff, well, those aren't that hard for you, but you're only climbing your hardest problem a couple times a year. So why you make, why is every day news? I just don't understand. Like my generation is like, until you stick a nine, nine on high bar or a 10, you, you don't have anything to talk about. I don't care about nine, six anymore. You know, I don't care if you're not throwing a double Kovacs and you're not, you're not doing some intricate wrist work or who cares? Like well, it's just you at the gym, you know, that's and the humility now you have a master man, like the, like the extreme masters that I've ever, that I've met, they're, they're humble. They're you know, they're quiet. And they, and the reason that is, is because they realize that they're, that they're still working. They're still working, working. Towards, towards their goals, you know, and whatever everybody else judges them by, that's fine. You know, they accept that and they don't need to talk about what yeah, they're exactly. doing because there's, there's just a work in You're progress. You're just in it. I mean, there's tons of workouts I have in my wall where I'm knocking down huge grades and I'm not going to go spray about all my workouts. I mean, I'm sure some people would be interested to totally. see what I'm doing. Absolutely. And some of it's yeah. kind of exciting, but yeah, there's tons of days where there's a dozen double digit problems going down a rapid succession, you know, pre preparing for throwback. I, I knew the week before I did it, I was in good shape because I did a V12 three times in five minutes, six minutes. To me, that's probably more impressive than doing the route itself that I was training for, but you, you know, I guess, I guess you could promote that, but I'm not promoting it. I'm just telling you guys about it. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that I think is badass that yeah. 
I don't necessarily go piping off about. I just see a lot. There's just a lot more piping off, and it's nothing against climbers. It's people in general with social media yeah. are just piping off a lot about every little thing that, like, all of a sudden because they have a channel, everything they do is important, and I just don't think so. Yeah. I think there's a lot of fodder, and there's just a lot of chatter, and there's a lot of noise. And so when I threw that thing out there, I thought, you know, I'm just gonna throw it there and let it sit. And I'm not the kind of guy who throws a video up every week, so. It's the summer in your... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Over time, you're going to learn what's important and what's not. And just because people aren't promoting or just because people aren't sharing or just because people aren't fronting, it doesn't mean they're not getting down to business. And I'm always curious to see who's doing stuff that... Knowing about who might be doing something that we don't see, mm. who we don't know. Read between the lines. The ninja. Got, the, yeah, the, guys like James Litz are out there climbing hard all the time, and he's not piping off about everything that he does. You just hear bits and pieces. Yeah. And some new kid coming along would be like, well, who's James Litz? No. You know, I mean, it's just funny. It's funny. Yeah. I talked to a guy recently called for business, and he he's like, oh, man, I definitely know who you are. And I was thinking, okay, this is an old bastard. He probably... <laughs> He's got to know me from way back when in the 90s. And he's like, I remember that sick video on throwback. So I'm like, okay, I'm thinking this guy, yeah, this guy like knows who I am yeah. before that from 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. No, he knows me from nine months ago, eight right. months ago. I mean, that the attention spans changed a lot. Yeah, you know, it's like your new hit. What have you done for me lately? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so we don't care if. Uh, if Miles Davis wrote the best song in 1965, what has he done lately? Yeah. You know, that's kind of... How many posts on Instagram yeah. this week? Miles Davis doesn't have an Instagram. <laughs> he ain't nothing. You know, so it's... I've really struggled with that just yeah. as a sensible human being because on so the one hand, you want to promote, you want to stay relevant. On the other hand, you know, I grew up listening to punk rock and I'm, I'm reading John Lydon's book, Anger is an Energy Now. He's... <laughs> You know, he, he was Johnny Rotten and uh, the Sex Pistols and then he started Public Image Limited. And... Um, yeah, I just think there's a lot of bullshit out there. Yeah. And, and I really, I like the people who just get down and dirty and get after it. And I, I think that there's, there's a lot of people who become like a cult of personality through this. And certainly I've benefited from that in the past with, with media promotion. So I'm not going to, not going to complain too much about what it's provided me, but I always tried to keep the promotion in line with the accomplishment. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. It's real easy now that everyone has a, a video camera and a phone with them everywhere they go. And, Generally, people travel in, in groups now, and they yeah. they need to document every aspect of their lives. And I think that that's a distraction from the moment. I think it's really hard to to want to be in the outdoors documenting everything we do, or to totally. Man. I mean, if you're playing music, you shouldn't be recording every minute. You should right. record when it matters. Yeah, you should kind of have some anxiety about recording and then throw down. You know, you shouldn't. You, something has to be sacred, yeah. and and I think that the time that you spend preparing. You know, I look at bands like Fugazi. They spend a lot of time preparing. They don't play anymore, but man, they spend. A, they're playing eighteen hours a day, getting ready for a tour. When they hit the stage, they are not messing around. They are going to kick those songs hard, and they don't miss. They play like a jazz band. They can look at each other, and bam, the beat starts. They know what's coming. They don't have a playlist. They they don't. They know it's coming, and they didn't even plan it. You know what I'm trying? Like they're real, and that they're very improvisationally based. And um, another one is Tool. Tool is really good at that too. They have very ten complex years, rhythms. Ten years in between albums. Every album is a masterpiece. 
Absolutely. And they do no promotion. Absolutely. They don't like yeah. talk about it at all. They just, just get down and work. Man. It stands alone. I really respect that. Yeah, I've um, struggled with that with Project Bouldering, like the like taking a camera and wanting to make videos and wanting to because I think it does help to build psych. Like people seeing cool stuff happening in New Mexico videos, they're like, oh, I want to get out there. But I definitely occasionally have to draw the line of like, I'm not taking a camera today. It's nice to just go to. The, Go outside. You oh, know. It's amazing. Go to the you're sickest dead. days climbing ever. You're not. You're going to be like, oh, didn't take a you're, single picture. You're not going to see yeah. photos of me busting in air skiing because I yeah. suck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I rip better than most people who go to every ski area. But I'm nowhere near where I need to be, so I'm not going to document yeah. that. Even if yeah. you see me ski by, you might think I'm pretty good at carving, but I'm not going to promote my skiing. Yeah. And, it, and maybe that's just because I am decent at something, so I feel like not everything else I do is that great. But I feel like this whole society is is real enamored of itself way too much. Yeah. And, and the problem with that is you're just stuck in your own head when you go outside and just enjoy your time. Yeah, a lot of times I bring the camera and I turn it on, even if it's to take my own photos. And I should take more photos, obviously. Uh, I, I get obscure for long periods of time, but that's just because I'm enjoying the, the actual yeah. experience. I think our all of our technology has pulled us out of the moment in a lot yeah. of ways. It can be used in a good way. I'm not. I'm very much early adopter of technology. I just don't want it to be a part of every moment of my life. Yeah. Well, so, that's the purity of of our activity. It has nothing to do with capturing it. Because it's the feeling that you get while you're doing it. You're not going to get that feeling later, but you're always going to remember that feeling. It's not, you know, it's going it, to, you don't need a, you don't need a photo of it yeah. because you're going to remember like the moment that you sent throwback, that's more important to you than any video ever could be. Sure. The video helps well, you. Well, and that remember. was a real video off of our phone in that case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was off my phone. Audio turned out great. It was raw. I went back and did a photo shoot on, of it that we used for you know, some of our sponsors used for posters and With content. Nathan Bancroft, right? Yeah, and we actually shot another video of it, and we haven't even released it because I just kind of like the raw. Yeah. So you've repeated it? No, we uh, did a photo shoot. Posed okay. a video, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what you do. You go pose a video that's well lit and all that. Totally, man. Since I don't normally travel with a camera yeah. crew the way people do now. I have to yeah. go, I'm old school. I go back and do the, quote, do the photo shoot. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone does the photo shoot in real time now, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes the, the problem with the old way to doing things is that you you're uh you're always posing when people see you you know you're doing a section you're doing a move you're hanging on but you're not really in the moment so the thing i do like about all the new media is that you are people are capturing real moments it is the first it is what you're seeing sometimes is is the real send so i do like that aspect of it i just don't feel like gearing up for a shoot every time i pull onto the rock that's what it is it's not that i'm not climbing i'm just like i flashed the girl from ipanema which is a very hard v11 at pre-straw and I didn't even put it on my website yet, you know, whatever. And that was like three years ago or whatever. Because Brandy was working it, and then I decided to just pull on and go do it. And been saving it for the flash, and that was a good flash, you know. But I, there's no video of me doing it. I didn't. The, cute, I was filming. I was there filming the girls. Uh, yeah. You know, she was working on it. And, um, and I was just the camera guy. So between their burns, I, I flashed it. So, I, you know, no one was running the camera for me. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> the camera guy's flashing the V11. Yeah, you know, so, so um, whatever. That, but I think that's cool, though. I mean, that's... I think finding balance is just like anything. It's good to preserve what you love. And I'm not thinking just about how distracting that would time. be if I was, like, in a rehearsal with some of the best musicians I know and you were pretty sure magic is about to happen and it's like wait a second we gotta like 
set up mics and everything. You dispel the magic, right? You know, it may not be as magic with the camera rolling. It's the whole, like, it's the whole Schrodinger's cat thing, you know? It's like, if you, as soon as you start looking at it, it changes. It changes. It's you like know? you see musicians just getting warmed up, and then if they just start playing and getting in sync, that's when they should start recording, no matter what happens. Yeah. Even if they're covering someone else's tune, let it roll. Yeah. Instead of, okay, you guys ready now? What track are we doing? You, know, you need a little bit of that because yeah. you're producing a product, but I think there's a beauty to just being receptive to what you feel like doing in the improvisational aspect and that going off script. Yeah. You know? Well, like, I think that sums up our whole conversation right now very well. Going off script? Talking about following the moment, saying yes to the moment. All right, now I'm going to go do gymnastics. All right, now I'm going to ditch soccer. Now I'm going to go skiing. Now I'm going to climb. I'm going to get the 2.7 GPA because I don't care about this and I realize that I'm that my intelligence needs to be nurtured in different ways. You know? So it's all about going off script. It's all about doing distracting devices. That yeah, there you go. Dang old phone. Let me let me turn this dumb thing off <laughs> so we can stay off script. See, this device is always trying to pull us back on script. That's the problem. Yeah, It's scripted behavior. Get it out of here. Even though it seems like a form of freedom, it's scripted yeah. behavior. Totally. So, yeah, you're, we're trying to get off script. I think everyone's looking for that in their yeah. lives. I think climbing provides that because you can go search for rock. I know I'm getting back to a question you asked a long time ago in the interview, but we went looking for rock because after you mound and then front side of the mountains we were looking for limestone where it was cooler and so big block came on and then we developed that area and that was actually a bob murray find you guys um, dug that out right oh uh, it was dug out a little bit i think it just eroded naturally pretty okay. much and that was our first kind of steep bouldering area before yeah. we had gyms uh, so that was like the the training ground what else was necessary and, and to... then when lewis moved to placidus uh, okay and then i moved in with him we were roommates Temple and wood. Then we discovered everything up Las Huertas from a climbing standpoint. Others had explored, but we got busy developing. So we're not taking credit for discovering the new world. You know, no. we're not going to be acting like we're pre-Columbian or anything. <laughs> post-Columbian people. You know, we're, I don't know who found what, but I know that when we, when Lewis found the, the Woody, he actually hiked me up there and there was like probably two feet of snow. Wow. And um, it looked even lower to the ground than it was. <laughs> so we dug that out three feet. Yeah. And um, got real aggressive about the cleaning and the route interpretation. And we didn't have a lot of steep rock or steep gym climbing. So the right side of the temple is manu- or right side of the woody rather is manufactured. Mm-hmm. Um, Those are the drilled pockets. Right? Yeah. And that was originally going to be a much higher density endeavor okay. to create more eliminates. There are some eliminates in there within what's available, but initially it was going to be gridded and then we decided not to. Um, I think if you know you have more rock than that, you probably wouldn't do that, but we didn't know how much more rock was on the horizon mm-hmm. in the area. But it still became a great training ground. Because yeah. It was a beautiful place. You could go there and meditate, yeah. stretch. I mean, the climbing experience used to be very different. You're trying to create yeah. density in one spot with a nice flat landing so you could go alone. You weren't yeah. going to posse up. You didn't have 10 pads. You didn't have any pads. So you prepared your landings. And then when you had a pad, you had one. So that went over the high point you could fall. But oftentimes you had to be able to do the crux over a, a, you know, not over a pad or you only had two pads. So preparation of landing was very important because you're doing link ups and traverses. And it was, it was viewed as a training ground. Yeah. Sure. You know, it was not viewed as a 
midnight lightning once in a lifetime boulder. It's like, right. hey, this is all about the density. It's yeah. limestone. We're not we're not purporting that this is the nicest climbing. We're gonna get fit here. And I trained for a lot of competitions there. Yeah. And uh, it was the Las Huertas development was good because it was halfway between Santa Fe and Albuquerque time wise. So it really opened up bouldering for Santa Fe too. Yeah. Even though it's closer to Albuquerque, the drive time's about the same right. actually. And um, then we found the temple by walking on top of the man cave on the ridge above the man cave from the woody we hiked it back and forth Hmm. and saw a hole through the trees there were more trees at the time it's been de-vegetated to to unearth the woody and we saw a little steep hole in there and ran down and found the draw and ran up there and you know it hadn't even really had too many party fires like big block in the woody it had a lot of partiers going and tagging and burning fires there and um the Woody was a huge discovery. Or yeah. the, I'm sorry, the temple was a huge discovery for us. It took us solid three or four weeks of digging and excavating, and we still never really got it where we wanted it. It was a monumental effort to, to unearth that. It took a lot of busting loose stuff off the rock. The rock was generally better at the temple, but still the undersides had a lot of clingy blocks and stuff, and the, um, the landing need, needed a lot of work. It could still use a lot of gravel, actually, to help with the erosion. Yeah. Um, has a really nice tree that hangs down from the top that it's we beautiful. refused to cut. <laughs> it's so We've cool. trimmed it because yeah. it was getting damaged from people climbing, okay. but we re- I refused to kill that tree. It's, it's so like beautiful. a bonsai tree. Yeah. yeah, and it would actually open up some other top. It's just not worth it. I want yeah. the tree there. So, ethically, like taking a step back, ethically at that time, who did you look to? Was there any standard for bouldering development? Was there being in Europe and seeing what they've done with Seuss and Frank and Jura and things like that? What kind of drove? your decision-making of like, we're going to dig, we're going to drill, we're going to chip or glue, or was there anything, Well, any guide at that point? There was no guide. There was no printed material. There was no precedent legally. Yeah. Um, we knew that the Europeans had been manipulating rock to create movement or open up climbing, particularly on limestone. Yeah. And we knew that the Americans were doing it, but they had just been doing it inadvertently and subconsciously by bashing pins in, in the Yosemite. Yeah. Um, so I knew there was a lot of hypocrisy in the sport. Um, I was always of the understanding that when you partake upon developing an area, that you have to take into account the, the type of rock, the quality of the rock, the style of the climbing, the prevailing ethic for that subset Mm. of parameters and follow it. And if you're not going to follow it, you should probably go to the HNIC and ask for permission. So at the time that things at UMound took place, where I deviated from the ethic, the, some of the criteria were met for those Bowler problems to be altered because of the rock quality, because of the angle, because mm-hmm. of the style of the movement. But the area didn't meet the criteria. Mm-hmm. So I actually went to who I, den- I identified as the, the ringleader, the mm-hmm. strongest climber at the time. Mm-hmm. The one who had done the most routes there. Yeah, the yeah. one who was working on the same problem that we were considering uh, introducing unorthodox ethics onto. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that person at the time was Bob Murray. The other yeah. person would be John Duran. So I always went to the top of the food chain yeah. to ask him for permission and advice. Yeah. And every time I did it, I talked to somebody who I thought was relevant in that discussion at that area at that time. 
um, I think where debates have occurred has been when certain groups of people feel usurped because they felt that they were entitled because they had been parking their fat asses there for a long time, but not really producing. Yeah. And you don't necessarily get a vote in these matters just by association. You got to produce. You got to be an expert in the area. Period. So I always ask for permission. Yeah. Um, I didn't always take the advice of the people granting permission. <laughs> I didn't always agree with them. They didn't always agree with me. Yeah. But if you were to work your way up the food chain of the totem pole at that point, you would find that there were people who I looked up to and people I deferred to always and people who we discussed these matters with in every situation. So in the case of anything that was any tactics that were used on granite, mm-hmm. That was always going to be an older climber. That was going to be a more accomplished climber. That was going to be somebody who I knew, probably knew more than I did and been around more than I had in that realm. If it were limestone or a new area that I found, particularly if the quality was subpar, the impression I have is you set the ethic. Mm -hmm. The ethic doesn't just transition from one era, one style, one type of rock to another by osmosis. It's not an issue of jurisdiction. And I think that's what people don't really understand in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's not an issue of jurisdiction. And I don't, I, and, and I don't bring my jurisdiction with me. No. I don't, I've never altered really anything in Arizona. I don't, I would never go to, to the Ortegas and, and unacceptably alter rock. The mere fact that we are present in the rock with the rock and look at it is an alteration of it from an existential standpoint. (laughs) The fact that we touch it, the fact that we chalk it, the fact that we put our grimy boot rubber on it, ticket, photo it, direct people's attention to it and exploit the hell out of it for our egoist needs is a form of alteration of spirit in my opinion. So I have a very, full spectrum view of rock alteration and rock exploitation. Mm. I think that you could have pristine, a pristine area that's quote unaltered and pure by certain accounts or by on certain scales, but over exploit it and destroy the foliage, destroy the experience, destroy the access. And to me, that's much worse than some of the other transgressions that people have been accused of yeah. well, in regard to rock alteration. Well, so I, I, I think that there's, there's a spectrum for it. Would I view the spectrum the same now as I did 25 years ago? Absolutely not. Well, it's just born. totally different. It's just a totally different era. Like it makes sense then it might not make sense now. Absolutely. But also what you're talking about, I mean, it still applies, you know, when you walk up to a pristine piece of rock and you decide, all right, well, I'm going to climb this and you're going to, you know, essentially graffiti on it by putting chalk on it. Essentially. And, you know, what is uh, that? That's and pry absolute. off loose things. Yeah. You're going to yank off choss and you're yeah. going to, you know, make the route you want to make. And, and I don't see any problem with that unless there's like native American or like, you know, I don't know, petroglyphs on it or something like that. And I've always actually been a proponent of protecting archeologic assets in climbing. And I've been involved with some areas that I developed or discovered and moved to, sh- to close them. Because I thought that the other people who ushered in after me were destroying the archaeologic artifact or or uh, destroying the petroglyphs. And so I'm not actually in favor of climbing everywhere. I actually mm-hmm. think that riparian habitat should be heavily protected. To me, I don't care if you're trad climbing, how you're climbing, repelling, what you're doing. I don't care if you're standing on the ground yodeling about climbing and piping <laughs> off. If you're doing it in riparian habitat, you're having more of an impact than somebody who is 
manufacturing a route in an area that is not as sensitive to riparian yeah. habitat. Well, so there's a lot of hypocrisy in, in these discussions, actually. Well, and there's so many variables, and people choose the variable they, they want to. Like, no, none of this, but all of this is okay. And, and I think in the climbing community, certain times those things are really gravitated towards. Like, a, a chipping discussion is, like, giant. But if you talk about music in a wilderness area, it's a different conversation. Yeah. So I think people gravitate towards the certain variables that are hot items or or they feel impassioned about it. And maybe they do personally, but maybe it's because if I post this comment, other people will see that I'm engaged in this conversation. Yeah, I, I, I think, think it's a lot it goes back to being a cop or a robber. You know, a lot of people they can't ski fast. So they're going to cruise around trying to keep other people from skiing fast. <laughs> you know, make no mistake about it. Just because you can keep someone else from skiing fast doesn't mean you rip. Yeah. It just means you're cock blocking activity. <laughs> that's all it means. You know, that's kind of how I view it. I'm like, yeah, great. You can, you can narc on people, but that doesn't mean you can throw down. Yeah. You know, I think the, the people who cry the loudest are generally people who can't back it up. Generally mm-hmm. speaking. I know that's a mean thing to say, but. Generally. In general. In general. You know, you're not going to hear me debating uh, nuclear politics because I'm not a nuclear physicist. And I think our industry and our sport suffers because there hasn't been a well-established sense of professionalism and what is considered expert. And everybody seems to be entitled to an opinion. I'm I'm not saying I'm not in favor of democracy, but when you have a trial going on following a democratic process and, and... and you believe in liberty, you're, you're still using, you're affording due process. Yeah. You're still conducting an investigation. And if you're going to pull an expert witness, they're an expert. They may even have a slant, but they're an expert. Right. And I think that a lot of these debates have been subject to individuals with ulterior motives who are not experts, actually, who have personal motive and who don't have the best interest of the sport in mind. Right. Well, they're not really trying to resolve yeah, an issue. Yeah. They're, they're trying to um, burn someone at the stake. It's a witch hunt. It has nothing to do with the sport. It has to do with their own vindictive agenda. And that's why you haven't seen me back down on certain issues over the years, because I actually know the personal motives of a lot of the people who've been involved with these debates, whether or not these things have been directed at me or other individuals. Yeah. I well, do not get involved on the, on the Internet. I take it straight to the perpetrator. And that's something that a lot of people find shocking. It's something that people, they're being personally tested with that. When you get in someone's face, man to man, then we're going to really see what you believe. When we're really going to see what you back up. We're going to really see what you represent. And and that's one of the reasons I don't like the internet in general, is that people can bash on each other with political issues, social issues, racial issues. There's very little consequence. It's just a public forum for people to troll each other. Yeah, people act like they know you because of what they know about you second, third, fourth hand online, what they read, what they heard, and then then that misinformed individual will perpetrate you by memorializing something online, which isn't even accurate. Uh, and, And as a as an educated individual, even though I dropped out of college, having been a student of philosophy and a person who speaks multiple languages and a person who um, has read a lot of philosophy and a person who actually respects the pen over the sword, I actually um, 
prefer if people deal with things face to face, as contradictory as that sounds. It sounds paradoxical, but it's actually a, a it's more of an insurance policy that people are going to be civil and be honest. Yeah. Well, it's where true communication takes place, man. It yeah. really is. Well, There's like so much that gets lost on the internet and, you know, with, with just texting and everything. Yeah, everybody's had the, the experience of texting like a, a, one really simple message and it gets like misinterpreted, you know, somebody doesn't read your tone right or something like that. Absolutely. They can't see the expression on your face. They can't hear your tone of voice. You actually really do care and that you're like this very, very passionate force in the climbing, right? Or in whatever the debate is. So I, I want to thank you for your climbing development in New Mexico. Oh, I appreciate For it. everything you've done, man, for New Mexico climbing. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I don't develop as much as I used to because I'm so busy with my company. Yeah. With Futurist Climbing Consultants. So I don't have as much disposable time to uh, traipse around and look for new rock yeah. Yeah. and Scramble. Un unearth. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoy going and looking even when we don't find anything. Yeah. That's a really nice experience just to be outside. Uh, the process of discovery is very rewarding. Absolutely. It's, I think it's, I think it's an inherent part of developing a relationship with climbing. Yeah. Yeah. We've been out recently with, um, went out with William Penner to Hermit's Peak area and have been exploring some boulders in the wilderness there. And it's beautiful. It's just that dopamine, that like rush of like what's around the next corner and feeling that feeling, I think for me drives me to climbing more than climbing most times of like seeing new things and like imagining yourself on that rock and the process of cleaning it and developing it and then climbing it or not cl trying to climb it. There's like, there's a beauty to that process, I think. And well, and having an eye for it too, yeah. especially when you're in the state of New Mexico where a lot of the rock quality is pretty subpar. You right. got to look yeah. through a, a pile of vegetation sometimes to see a climb. Yeah. Especially at Cuesta where we scrubbed a lot of a lot of moss. It know? again it again speaks to everything we were talking about, you know, going off the beaten path, looking where others haven't looked, doing things that aren't by the book, you know, going off book. I think yeah, a lot of the younger climbers now they follow a lot. They're not going off the beaten path. They're not have and as a result, you're not afforded the opportunity to look within yourself. Mm. That's why I think the old schoolers and the young guys who like to develop uh, are gravitating towards it. And I think that helps you cultivate a lifelong relationship with climbing yeah. if you're actively pursuing new rock, new areas. Yeah. Well, and hops, keep you going outside to where you're 90 years old and you can't even climb. You just want to find the next boulder yeah. for the other guys. Send yeah. it to someone else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and Hobbs spoke to it, man. Thank you for going off that path. Like, you're never going to please everyone all the time. And, and but... I, I love Big Block. I love the temple. I love the Woody. We keep going back. We keep finding projects. We keep doing eliminates that I'm sure you guys That's did. Funny. And so it's, it's, it's bright, man. It's not all, it's, no, there's it's darkness great. always, but there's bright. No, it's, so, it's been great. Yeah. I mean, that we've needed those areas. A lot, those areas have made a lot of people strong. Yeah. Those areas have made a lot of people fit. Those areas have provided a sanctuary for a lot of people, including myself. I've, we tried to create areas where you could climb alone. Mm -hmm. which That's I where I started really training with Big Block. I'd call it my church. Every Sunday morning, I like cut out some bad habits of Saturday night and Sunday morning. I'd get up and go out early in the morning. That's great. It would rain. I'd sleep under the rock. I'd be out there all day. And it was just, it was, it was church. That's what it's for. I've spent yeah. a lot of time climbing alone at the temple. Yeah. Decrypting routes when I was first figuring out how to do 
the FAs, you know, unlocking sequences, had a lot of great breakthrough moments there alone. And also um, just chucking laps on things I'd done. Yeah. That's a great point of reference. We built a meditation stoop there. Um, it's, it's, it was designed with a purpose. Yeah. It wasn't about the climbing. Intentional. It was, it was a very intentionally laid out a facilitative environment. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, man, for coming on. It's been a long time coming and being so candid. I mean, I'd love to talk to you more that we have a, you saw the list of hundreds of other things. To well, talk we went about. off script, right? So I think it was, it was perfect. It was exactly what it, what it should have been and what it was. So thank you. Appreciate yeah. Thank it. you guys. Timmy Fairfield, where can people, uh, where can people connect with you on social media? I have Facebook. They can just look for my Facebook page. It doesn't get updated with the regularity of many of the younger folk. Um, and I have a website, timmyfairfield.com and futuristclimbing.com. And if anybody who listens to this podcast has any questions about anything, they're welcome to contact me directly. And if they want to discuss any serious matters, they're welcome to come meet with me in person. And I'll discuss anything with anybody. Open door policy. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Thanks. This has been the Project Bouldering Podcast. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're also available at projectbouldering.com. See you out there.